Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix series and films with special guests. And all the stories we talk about on this show are surprisingly true. With 2018 coming to a close, we couldn't help but think back on what a crazy year it's been in the world of Netflix true crime. And what better way to celebrate the holidays than by curling up on the couch and watching and rewatching our favorite series and documentaries. So we brought in two true crime experts to round up the 2018 best of Netflix true crime. Shane Madej and Ryan Bergara host BuzzFeed's YouTube series called Unsolved. They're here to break down what they watched, why it stood out, and how the genre might evolve in 2019. After that, we'll hear from one of the most memorable figures of any Netflix true crime series, Ma'anan Sheila. We met Sheila earlier this year in the hit docuseries Wild Wild Country. We'll talk to her about her relationship to Wild Wild Country and how her life has been going since its release. And now, here's Ryan and Shane. I'm Ryan Bergara. And I'm Shane Madej. And uh, we're the hosts of BuzzFeed Unsolved. It's a uh, show that covers cold cases. And uh, that's pretty succinct right there, right? I think so. Yeah. So today we're just going to basically be talking about some of our favorite Netflix true crime shows of the year. Mm-hmm. So what should we start with here? Um, I think a good entry point would be Evil Genius because that was actually an episode that we did on our show. It was about the collar bomber, old Brian Wells. Yeah, Brian Wells. We, we are kind of operating under the assumption that most of you have seen these, but if not, Let's give a quick little plot summary, a little IMDb plot summary. Uh, I could do that, Shane, if you want. Uh, uh, I'll start. Brian Wells, a wonderful man. Oh, I thought you were going to do like one word at a time kind of thing. Oh, no. No. This is not an improv. We're not at the UCB here. We're not at Groundlings? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you got Brian Wells, who is a pizza delivery man, sort of a a man with a good reputation. Everyone around town thinks he's like a a nice guy. A little color. That's good. Three cats. Yeah. Three cats. He's got three cats. He does have three cats. Sometimes he takes them outside. I remember that detail. Uh, Basically, Brian Wells is a pizza delivery man. He goes out for a call, and the end of the pizza delivery ends up uh, with him having a bomb collar on his neck. And uh, uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for him. He uh, tragically does die as a result of the explosion because he didn't accomplish what was, uh, I guess, the demands of the conspirators who put this collar on his neck. Basically, these people had a a plot for him to rob a bank and then uh, complete some sort of psychotic little scavenger hunt, which was, frankly, impossible. There was no way that he was going to be able to complete this hunt. No, the authorities tried to recreate 
him having to do this and they said he wouldn't have made it no so it was very much a, a foregone conclusion that this man was going to die at yeah. least in the minds of the conspirators which frankly is pretty upsetting and abhorrent one uh, of the things that um because it becomes apparent throughout the episode throughout the series rather i think it's during the first episode when we discussed it on our show we didn't see a lot of footage obviously and we didn't see interviews with this woman who would eventually become involved marjorie uh, marjorie uh what's her last name marjorie, marjorie Deal Armstrong. Armstrong. yeah the titular evil genius. Yes. Yes. Even though she claims not to be. But there's never a moment in the doc where she says, I'm an evil genius. No, right? but she says, I'm not an evil genius. Wait, she does? I don't yeah. remember that. No, she, it's like the opening dialogue of the whole thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm trying to prevent your movie from being a flop. I am not some evil genius who was greedy and wanted some guy to rob a bank for me. I didn't have anything to do with the goddamn crime. Yeah, very good, huh? Good, that's good. I do love a good titular moment. Yeah. One of the things that jumped out to me in the documentary, you really get a sense that he... Brian Wells maybe was not taking it seriously at first. I think he thought it was like a a funny little joke. And that's frankly why a lot of people suspected that he was in on the conspiracy because of that nature. Yeah. Because if you were, you you know, if you were set off on this uh, life-threatening scavenger hunt, you would carry yourself in a certain way. You would Uh show uh, some nerves. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't be walking out of a bank with a lollipop in your mouth, things like that. They described him walking out as doing a little Charlie Chaplin walk, <laughs> which I don't know if any like killer yeah, has no. ever done that. I mean, maybe that would actually make them more menacing. That's but, quite scary yeah, to imagine. Yeah, that's like almost Kubrick status. But <laughs> it's gross. Uh, but I can get behind the notion that, yes, he should have carried himself in a certain type of way if he was, in fact, a victim. Yeah. But... Once again, it's kind of hard to look at this in a vacuum and say, like, this is how everyone should behave when mm-hmm. they're in this situation because no one knows how they're going to behave when there's a bomb strapped to your neck. Maybe you're trying to play it cool, convince yourself yeah. kind of thing. I don't know. Frankly, I probably would would be in tatters. I'd be screaming. <laughs> I would scream until it exploded. Every 10 seconds, Shane would scream out, there's a bomb on my neck. Yes. <laughs> so people will know. Everyone should know. Um so one of the things that we talked about in the Unsolved episode was that Jessica Hoopsick, who was a... She was the sex worker that was connected to uh, Brian Wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other guy? The, and Kenneth uh, Barnes. Ken Barnes. So she was like loosely connected. There was uh, like, it seemed like she was involved somehow. And then in Evil Genius, the director actually gets to talk with her at the end of the series. And she essentially confesses that... Marjorie and her gang of ne'er-do-wells essentially paid her off in, I think, drugs to rope him into it and throw the bomb around his neck. Now, and she felt very guilty about it. I, I did see a little bit of chatter online, and this wasn't in any kind of reputable sources, but like, you know, like Reddit-based chatter, mm-hmm. that not a lot of people bought that. Real? What's her motivation then? Though? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Why would she lie? Yeah, that's a strange thing to um, lie about. Maybe people kind of felt that Brian Wells was having this kind of character assassination done on him and that she kind of felt partially responsible. But even that's just me kind of like spitballing right there. But, you know, people on Reddit, they just they kind of just make claims and go, I don't buy it. Yeah. And then like people go, yeah, I don't buy it either. Upvote points, points, <laughs> yeah. points. Um, so, uh, that being said, I do, I, I did buy it, 
but yeah and i actually didn't really follow up post series to see what had happened because you would think her confessing that would lead to exoneration in, in, in the context of a netflix series though is very different than exoneration in in a court of law though <laughs> so like, yeah and then i mean we're going to kind of you know approach that topic on all of these series because a lot of these series are very compelling but mm-hmm. they're also very persuasive yes. in, in what they can make you believe and uh <laughs> i mean there's a lot of people that think exonerate him right now it's, yeah. it's clear that he was innocent or she was innocent or they're telling the truth or they're not telling the truth. I, I will say out of out of all of the ones I watched this year, and maybe it's just the nature of the case in, in that there are so many morally gray characters mm-hmm. in it. Um, it seemed to be the most unbiased one in terms of not unbiased, but like not really taking a stance, just just being like. Uh, here's a lot of people who are doing some bad things. Some of them are slightly nice. Uh, (laughs) Boy, is this lady's house messy. Even Bill Rothstein comes off in the first episode or two. You're like, well, this guy seems like like he's really trying his best to make things right. Yeah, uh, and then by episodes three or four, you're like, "Well, I was absolutely wrong about him." <laughs> and then, kind of at the end, you're stuck with this like nebulous feeling of like, "Who? What do I feel about any of this?" Yeah, um, makes me not want to go to Erie. I'm sure it's a lovely town, but boy, <laughs> oh, I'll man, pass. Shots fired. <laughs> uh, I will say that I personally feel like he wasn't involved, but. It doesn't really matter what I think. I he suppose. may have just maybe run with that circle and just got unfortunately duped. Maybe that. He was seen. Yeah, I we mean, he, he he seemed to be highly suggestible. Yeah, is what I will say. Yeah, poor guy. On the topic of a uh, of exoneration, you do feel like why is this not is this man not being exonerated in a court of law, which is obviously very different than uh than within the realm of a Netflix series. Yes, but you know it it does raise that question, which I guess is a pretty sly transition into uh, our next series, which. I feel like everybody has seen at this point uh, Making a Murderer. Part two. And part one. Oh, yeah. Wait, part one wasn't this year? No, no, no. But part two is... I'm talking about like, oh, as, yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah. as like a whole they've series. They've probably seen that. If They're a companion piece. Yes, yes. I can't imagine people are tuning into part two. Yeah, I got to be honest. When part two came out, I was really... I was really bummed out where part one left off. Obviously, it was very engaging and mm-hmm. and... It was like a sensation. Everyone was talking about it. Yeah. But I didn't know if I had it in me to to hop back in that saddle. Because yeah. it, it was so draining. And uh I mean, yeah, you really gotta put on those boots and trudge oh through the mud yeah. once again. And to this season's credit, holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> I I I was swept off my feet. Basically, Stephen Avery, a resident of uh, Manitowoc, I think it's Manitowoc is how you pronounce it, Wisconsin, he was tried for a crime that he did not commit, and he was wrongfully sentenced to about 17 years in jail, or it might have been 18. Mm-hmm. A little foggy on that. But due to DNA evidence, he was exonerated, he was released, and then he sued the the county for, I believe, $35 million. And uh, because of that, they painted the, the idea that they would then want to frame him for murder so that they don't have to do this. And because he's, you know, he's coming after them. So enter Teresa Halbach, who dies, and Stephen Avery is one of the last people to see her, maybe the last person to see her, according to uh, the prosecution's case. And uh, he is convicted of the murder. Part one follows basically 
um, how he was framed, how evidence was planted. It was just all a narrative to get Stephen Avery back in jail so they could, uh, you know, not have pie on their face from mm-hmm. what he did to them the first time. Yeah. And he's saying that he was uh, wrongfully c- convicted twice now. That's part one. And part two enters at the ending of all that when Stephen Avery is now in jail. He's trying to prove his innocence, and that's where part two starts. And he gets a new defense lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, <laughs> uh, who, is a, who is the star of the show, the driving force. And we're just kind of following along about how she's building this case to prove Stephen Avery's innocence. And really, she's doing it from the ground up. Uh, we'll talk about the staircase after this, which feels like the opposite side of the coin because there's Mm -hmm. some stuff that goes on in that one where it feels like Kathleen is very much the opposite of someone in that series. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Where she is trying to recreate the evidence in a faithful way. But both actually, now that you bring that up, do touch on the aspect of what actually constitutes a scientific experiment Mm -hmm. because both of them touch on the subject of trying to achieve a result as opposed to just honestly conducting a scenario to yeah. see what would happen. And one of the interesting things to me is she she restates a couple times how her job there is not to offer like a solution or like she's not there to point fingers and say like no, this is who did it. Her job is essentially to say this was mishandled. There was some funny business the first time around. Exactly. There were some holes in the what the prosecution was putting forward. They withheld a lot of things that would have altered the case. Yeah. And she stresses that she's not there to essentially point out who the actual suspect is. But then she goes and does the damn thing anyway. Exactly. She it, does it. I mean, she's just relentless. And yeah. I, and I, I think you could kind of feel her fire. And yeah. the reason why I think you, you kind of go into her corner in the very beginning is because she says very, very clearly that I am here to find out what happened. Yeah. That's number one. I told Stephen Avery the same thing I tell everyone. If you hire me and you're guilty, trust me, I'll do a way better job than the prosecutors. I will find out if you are guilty. And we're going to do testing. We can't control the results. The results will be turned over to both sides. So really think about this. You would have to be an idiot to be hiring me to prove that you're guilty. She's there for the truth, yeah. which is what everyone is. That's why we're viewing. That's why we're watching these cases is, be- is because we're interested in the truth. So when she says that, you are very much behind her from the beginning because you know she's a no-nonsense, um, no-show. It's just all business. She wants to find out the truth. She wants justice. Yeah. And she is <laughs> scarily serious about it. I mean, she steals the season. I would watch, I would sh- give her her own show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll watch her pouring Wheaties into a bowl and eating, eating them for a half hour. She's, in, she's amazing. And the way she just tore down everything from season one that the prosecution was putting forward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just, she was a force of nature. You know, I'm, who, I'm not in love with her, but, but boy, you, I, I know I'm, I sound like a, you're a Zellner fan. You're I'm a, a Zellner. You're a, you're, an, you're a Zellner zealot. Yeah, that's what I am. <laughs> I will say this. <laughs> I do feel a little bad for Jerry Buting and Dean Strain. I know. Uh, oh, boy. Those poor guys. Yeah. Because she even makes a note. Like, she makes a point to not disparage them. She's like, you know what? They did what they could. I don't remember her exact words. But every time they're sort of disputing certain things like oh you know they you know the prosecution did this and mm-hmm. it you know 
they didn't really put up a fight. And they'll, they'll just cut to a shot of those guys yeah. just sitting there being like, nah, right. You could do that to anybody in life. Like, if you just said something that some people should be doing and then cut to, like, B-roll of you parking your car, Shane, and be like, he should have done this, he overlooked everything, and here's Shane parking his car. It makes you look like a doofus. Yeah. Um, These two were rock stars after part one. They they, they almost did it. (laughs) They were seen as sex icons or sex symbols. Were they seen as sex symbols, Ryan? that's That's what they said. In the dock. Oh, I don't remember two. that. They they went on a speaking tour. And then they tune into part two of Making a Murderer and left after right. It's just Zellner dunking on him. <laughs> like over and over and over again. She repeats the phrase, if only they had just brought in any kind of scientific experts, this all Stephen Avery would not be in jail. She would end it. She would say, if X happened, Jerry Buting, Dean Strang, Stephen Avery would not be in jail. She would. She said some version of that statement at least three or four times in the documentary, and every time she said that, it stung me a little bit. Where I was like, Ugh. "Yeah, like uh, those guys were sitting behind a lot of desks." You know, they, like the thing you see is a lot of people in conference rooms mm-hmm. talking it out. Yeah, yeah. Zellner was out there doing the work, boots on the ground, baby, boots on the ground. She, she, she glocked up. She had like a pistol <laughs> in her hand. She was shooting the garage, doing like ballistics. Yeah. She was. She didn't bring in somebody to shoot and do the ballistics report like on paper. She was out in the field with the the freaking headphones on. Yeah. Um. The uh, the one hero shot of her after she goes to get that like the bullet fragment analyzed after they do the tests on it. Yeah. Just cuts back to her sitting in the car swigging a can of diet coke. <laughs> I and I was like, yes. Just in a day of uh, just another day in the office for Zellner, <laughs> busting caps. <laughs> <laughs> one of my other great Zellner moments that I've noted is she talks about some other at some other case she was on where there was like some miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And she was like, I stood up and I was like she she was like I was a little woozy or lightheaded or something. And she said, and then that all faded. And I felt a very controlled rage. Oh, I remember that. A controlled rage. And as she said that, I swear that entire paragraph of dialogue that she went through, she didn't blink once. I know. And I was like, please blink because you're you're making me uncomfortable right now. So your big takeaway from this season, because I I exited part one thinking, well, I don't know. Like, I wasn't totally sure about Stephen Avery. I thought, like, I wanted to believe he was innocent, but I was like, "Eh, I don't know. And this season I'm walking away from it thinking, well, he was almost certainly set up. I like I walked away from this season really thinking this man is innocent. So, yeah, an incredible season. It's a, it's a good season. It's one of the few that were where I am clamoring for more. I really do want to see the resolution to this case. I mean, I my opinion does not matter that much. I don't think Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey did it, but you know. So uh, the other one we wanted to talk about was the staircase. Yeah. Before we delve into this too deep, let's just do a brief plot summary as well. Yes. Um, even if you people have seen this, just to re- just to re- just a refresher. Author Michael Peterson. Who I don't know how famous he was before this. I mean, he was famous for writing war novels. Yes. Um, One December night finds his wife at the bottom of the staircase. He says he assumes she fell. There's blood everywhere. A whole lot of blood. A lot of blood. Let's not undersell how much blood there is. I did say everywhere. Blood was certain. There was a lot of blood. It it didn't speak enough volumes in terms of the volume. Uh, I'll scream it. There was a lot of blood. (laughs) He just screamed it. (laughs) It it was uh, upsetting. And they include the the footage, the video footage of, I I don't, was he recording that footage or was that uh, the investigators? I want to say that was the investigators when they arrived at the scene. I can't imagine he just whipped out his. (laughs) His, handy so his cam. little Sony handy cam yeah. is like, this will be good for the library. Yeah, right. Um, 
Um, so he finds her and it's this whole ongoing trial where a lot of people think he was, there was some foul play involved. They bring in the fact that uh, he had a, a family acquaintance back in Germany who died under similar circumstances. 18 years prior to that, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, an acquaintance of him who lived next door to him had fallen down the stairs and also died. Yes. It's always fascinating to me the amount of footage and just how well covered the entire the entire process is. It's remarkable. This happened 15 years ago. Yeah. And yet they have very intimate footage of family discussions, you know, Michael, P- yeah. Michael Peterson driving around. They had the foresight to think somebody's going to want to watch this documentary yeah. later. Can you imagine how um, many hours of footage? They just must have spent every, uh, like, waking minute with them. You know, what's telling because it's a it's a very bizarre and unnatural thing to be on camera. It is. Yeah. No matter what it is. Even if it's a Sony Handycam, a, a little piece of crap camera, it's weird. You're not your true self. Right. What was telling to me in terms of the shooting ratio of this one, they don't even react to the cameras. It's like the cameras aren't even there. And these aren't people who perform for a living or like are in front of a camera. No, yeah. They, it must have been around so often. They that must they have been around like, like flies on a wall, yeah. literally. Yeah. And to think that they put in that kind of effort, this French crew put in that kind of effort to know that, you know, years later, people are going to be watching it on Netflix. Is is It blows my mind yeah. because of how well together it was put. One of the things I loved about this, compared to some of the other stuff I've seen this year, this more than anything else, aside from like the, you know, the strings that would come in like in between ep- like chapters, basically, yeah. and the chapter headers, like there was no, there was no... It wasn't gussied up in any way. No. It was just footage of everything that was going on. There yeah. were no drone shots. No, that's not <laughs> there were no, it was It was just, um, if you'll pardon me, very cinema verite. Yeah, very cinema verite <laughs> is how you would say it. A fly on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt like footage from like, here's grandma's 91st birthday. Yeah. Except, except grandma's except, on trial for murder. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, once again, if you haven't seen this, just be wary of watching it at first because they come in hot with very, very disturbing imagery. Yeah, it goes to from zero to 60 real quick. <laughs> yeah, I would say 100. Yeah, uh, sure. If 100 is walls covered in blood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is something I, I wonder, and this is something I wonder, not just in this case, but in general. When you discover a body, what do you do? I mean, because like, you, you, you obviously should call it in, but you are now obviously suspect number one, especially yeah. if it's your wife. Yeah. He said he went over he grabbed her um because she's dying he he in the 911 call he's saying something like she's still breathing which by the way becomes a point of contention later because they figure you know they think that when they arrived on the scene she'd been dead for hours yeah. so how could she have possibly been still breathing mm-hmm. so maybe there's some showmanship on on behalf of Michael Peterson there um he does seem like a showman right but i also believed him and i it, it's just that's the thing i he, so i don't know what to believe walking away from it. I think that the filmmakers did a, like, I don't know how invested they were in portraying him as a sympathetic character or if he is just good at, if he's either A, genuinely a pretty good, caring guy, B, he's a murderer who is very good at Likeable, charming. Most murderers yeah. are charming. Well, Ted Bundy, they say like, oh, well, that guy was a blast. How could you possibly be a killer? <laughs> right. That's yeah. why they're a killer, because yeah. they're capable of twisting their mind yeah. in that way. But to the series credit, I wanted him to be innocent. Maybe it's the pipe. The pipe is good. 
the pipe. It, <laughs> it made me want to start smoking a pipe. He I'm does not going smoke to. a pipe around like he's Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. It's, it's very, very strange. And he does bust out a lot of like Shakespeare quotes. Yeah. And we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the wonderful David Rudolph. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't seen this, first off, this I, I can't say enough how much I enjoyed this series. Um, I highly recommend it because I don't, I frankly haven't, uh, you know, encountered many people who have seen this series. But one reason to see it, other than the fact that the case itself is very fascinating and just interesting, yeah. is the character that is David Rudolph, who is Michael Peterson's defense attorney. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you'd watch Zellner making a bowl of cereal. I would watch David Rudolph go into 24 hour fitness. Um, uh, if you want to really experience Nirvana, there is an episode of this podcast in which he discusses part two of Making a Murderer. I got to get some ears on that. because yeah, um, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I want to watch this man, or uh, listen rather, I just want to listen to him chop it up. I, yeah. In his natural environment, he just seems like a guy you'd want to have a beer with. Yeah. Rudolph has a controlled, measured way in which uh, he presents everything. Mm-hmm. That just, everything he says has a certain level of gravitas to it because like, you don't feel like him, he, he's not pushing. No. You just feel he means... Everything he says, and he does it in a very swaggy, colorful way. Which makes it all the more heartbreaking in, is oh, it the last episode? We, we got to talk about episode eight, The Verdict. Okay, all right. So, all through this series, and this is the magic of how this, this, this series is cut. The first eight episodes are nothing but David Rudolph dunking on the prosecution. Uh-huh. Just straight up nailing it in court. Yeah. This At is, one point, he walks away from... I forgot who they're questioning, but he just says, he's fucking chopped liver. Yeah, he said, he says, fucking chopped liver. He whispers that into Michael Peterson's ear. <laughs> I was like, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, Dadoff. Yeah, Dadoff. Yeah, David, you show him. We're watching Jordan in his prime here. Like, I'm thinking, this is the greatest lawyer to ever walk the earth. Yeah. In a courtroom. You might set. as well be moonwalking through the place. I, I just like, I'm, I'm watching this trial unfold, and I'm thinking, how could anybody possibly not give the verdict? Of, of not guilty, or at the very least, the jury's going to be hung. I think there's a, a point in the, in like maybe episode seven where they're talking about the verdict the next day, and he's like saying, oh, yeah, I admittedly have some nerves. Yeah, I, I think the worst that's going to happen, though, is a hung jury. I'd be surprised if there was a hung jury, but pretty much we have this one in the bag. Yeah. Even with all of that set up, the jury walks out, and now this is kind of feeling like a bit of like, a, a bit processional for me. It's, it seems like something that's not actually needed. We all know what the verdict is. Mm-hmm. It's going to be not guilty. This mm-hmm. is just... Running through the motions, right? Yeah. So when they deliver that it's unanimously yeah. guilty of first degree murder, the cutback to David Rudolph's face, yeah, it's not Michael Peterson's face, no. David Rudolph's face is staggering and a gut punch unlike anything I've really ever experienced in a true crime documentary. Yeah. Because I'm not kidding you, this is not hyperbole. My jaw was slack to the ground. Yeah. I could not believe. Well, it is hyperbole because I probably. Oh yeah, was it? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. My no, my I broke my jaw. I broke oh, my God. jaw. My teeth were on the ground. My molars were everywhere. But no, I, I, I sat just open mouthed. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, did you see that coming? Like, I thought maybe I did see it coming because it seemed like they were bringing in a lot of stuff. Like, it seemed very biased going into it. The way they brought up his bisexuality and the Germany stuff. I was bracing myself for a guilty verdict. The reason why, I maybe I just fell for the allure of David Rudolph. I fell under his spell. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, why wouldn't the jury? What he said that was that rang true for me, you're not, it's not innocent. 
It's not guilty and innocent in the courtroom. It's guilty or not guilty. You're not trying to prove that this person, in fact, did not do it. You're trying to prove that there's reasonable doubt that they did it. Yeah. I thought I thought he did in that. spades. Yeah, he's he proved there was reasonable doubt. Yeah, but the thing is convincing that like making the jury understand. But that. the judge said that. I know, but the juries said juries are dumb. <laughs> that, yeah, the judge was like, I thought he proved reasonable doubt. I, I know. Yeah, when they interviewed thought, him at the end, he was it, like, Yeah, I thought he killed it, bro. Yeah, I thought he proved reasonable <laughs> doubt. I thought the jury would say that. Yeah, I'll say this: if Michael Peterson did not do it, this is a very unlucky man. This Real is, quick, we have to discuss. The owl. Oh, oh, yes, that's right. The owl yeah. theory. Did you read about the owl theory? I did read about the owl theory. There is theory. also, I noticed there was, it wasn't, <laughs> they barely mention it in the actual series because there's a part where, I think it's Rudolph, he's saying like, you know, it could have been a rap. He says it, he uses the term raptor and they just mention it and move on. Yeah. So when that was put into my head, I, I got to tell you, I'm all in on the owl theory. I know a lot of people on Reddit were like, that's not true at all. Get out of here. The reason why that theory even has a little bit of credence to it though, is the fact that there were there were all microscopic, microscopic owl, feathers. owl feathers found. I think there was one in her hand. There was some in her hair. Yeah. There was also blood on the front porch. Yes. So they posited she got attacked by a barn owl. Attacked it, her, her, she, her cranium. She ripped it off her head, ran inside. It holds enough water that Netflix actually, did you see in the list of episodes, there's like a four minute special it's like just a bonus clip where it's like the owl theory. Wait, I did not see yeah, that. Yeah, it's it's on the playlist. I'm going to go home and immediately watch yeah, that. Yeah, it's good. Because There's some good B-roll of owls. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I love that theory so much solely because if it is true, it was just this one owl doing what it does, just being like, ooh, lunch. Ooh. G- g-. And then or like, because of that nest. one owl's just instinctive decision, an incredible series on Netflix. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Give this, that owl a producer, one like owl, a producer credit. <laughs> I, I, I guess I didn't really think about it in that yeah, context. Isn't that crazy? One owl is looking for a new home on Zillow, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that nest looks nice. Let me land on that real quick." Yeah, and boom, and boom, <laughs> prestige television, prestige television. All right, uh, should we move on to just any other last tiny things we want to mention? Yeah, I think that's a good wrap-up point now that we've discussed the possibility of an owl being a cold-blooded killer. Yeah. Yeah, I think we covered the gamut there in terms of uh, the offerings. Yeah, those were those were the big heavy hitters, I think, for both of us. Yeah. Uh, those really made the year for me. There were some things I missed and some things that I really enjoyed that maybe we didn't discuss too much. Um, so I want to watch Wild Wild Country. I, um, I half-watched that while my girlfriend watched it, and... It seems nuts. So you like heard it through the walls yeah. while you were playing your Nintendo Switch what I, or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did watch American Vandal season two. Do you do you watch the I Vandals? watched season one in one day. Oh, you uh, did? And season two, I never got around to it. But season I enjoyed, two is incredible. Yeah, I want to watch American Vandal. I'm coming into a little bit of a, an excess of time for once. Well, there you go. And, uh, and, uh, and I'll probably spend it watching that and maybe some Wild Wild Country. Yeah. Is there anything coming up this there is, next year? There, there is uh, The Innocent Man, which is uh, just came out. Uh, there's the Ted Bundy series, which I believe features tapes that are never before heard. Well, that'll be horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> do you, you do much reading on Bundy? Uh, a little bit, and uh, I'm not jonesing to spend more time with him. But you know what? Uh, I, 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 but I, the morbid fascination will get you there. Perhaps. Yeah. That seems like a logical closeout point, right? We, we've talked about a lot of things. Yeah, there we've had a, a blast here today. It's been a wonderful year for true crime. Boy, oh boy. There's more to come, I'm sure. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Ryan, and listeners. Yeah, thanks for hanging out with me too, Shane. And listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, them too. Yeah. Yeah, them too. That was Ryan and Shane from BuzzFeed's Unsolved. You can check out their Supernatural and True Crime episodes on YouTube. 
Next up, let's get reacquainted with Ma Anand Sheila. Sheila was the personal secretary of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the Indian guru who started the controversial Rajneesh movement. She managed Rajneesh Puram, the spiritual compound that took over a small Oregon town. Sheila was also convicted of attempted murder, bioterrorism, and in 2018, she became the inspiration for a lot of Halloween costumes. Sheila called us from her home in Switzerland to tell us what life has been like since Wild Wild Country shook the world. This is Sheila. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm fine also. Let's get into this. First of all, could you introduce yourself? My name is Sheila. I am known also as Man and Sheila or Sheila Bianchtil or my maiden name Sheila Patel or Sheila Silverman. These are all my names. And I'm very proud of all of these names. I'm right now in Switzerland, sitting in my bedroom. I have two huge windows and two huge doors, French doors. I have my sweatshirt on. In fact, I'm right now wearing a maroon sweatshirt and a pair of jeans. What I do now is I work with mentally, physically, and psychologically handicapped people. We live together, we take care of them, and they, in return, take care of us by paying us, and uh, we have wonderful time together. In all honesty, McLean and Chapman, they are the creator of the film. McLean and Chapman send me, per our agreement, a copy of the film Wild Wild Country. I didn't have much time to go through it in detail because I know my life, what I have lived. So I went through, as agreement, front-forwarding. And there were information I didn't have there. I watched the small segment of it. But other than that, I know my life. And uh, I must say, it is a very big life. And I'm very proud of this life that I have lived and I feel that McLean and uh, Chapman have done a fantastic job putting into the film of this huge experiment. Of course, they have their own interpretation and they have full right to their interpretation. My first reaction when they contacted me was... Okay, yet another person will come to do a hatchet job on me. But it doesn't matter because my father had told me I must speak every opportunity I get and talk about my this broad experience of life through which many young people will be inspired. 
They came to visit me, of course. Both McLean and Chapman got a bit of uh, scolding from my sister. But that's between them and my sister, not between me and them. I share a room with my sister. When she's upset, she lets me know. And my visitors come in my house. I don't want her to be upset with them. Like she was with uh, Chapman and uh, McLean. My sister refuses to see it for her own reasons. But she has seen a very positive reaction of the audience of this film. And this positive reaction has brought some relief to her bleeding heart over her sister. Rest of my family all live in California, including my daughter and my granddaughter. My daughter mentioned to me that she saw the Wild Wild Country first episode that was couple of months back, she mentioned as a flying by story, but uh, she didn't dwell on it. But uh, they joke sometimes because uh, people at work talk about the film. I have a niece, she mentioned to me, she knows somebody from Netflix And they were talking about me. So like that, I hear from them. Or my sister, her husband works in uh, University of California and uh, legal department professors were talking about it or something. Then I hear things like that. And we laugh. It was a wonderful life. One reaction that you might not know is that there are actually more tourists who are going to that part of Oregon now. And I'm curious how you feel about this Rajneeshpuram tourism that's happening. I think payback is a bitch. (laughs) They deserve it. (laughs) Who am I to forgive town people or not town people? But life must go on. The one thing that I would take this opportunity to remind every one of us again and again, respect people for what they are, for their race, their religion, their color, their profession. Don't discriminate. Have a generous heart for one another. I live here in a small institute of 30 people. We have 15 nationality living with us. We have 15 different languages here. And even a language where some of our patients don't speak at all. And we get along wonderfully together. And that was the basis of our experiment in Radnishpuram. When in Radnishpuram people can live like that, I am certain everywhere people can live with one another. What I would like to say 
to all your listeners that if you are ever in Switzerland and have desire to visit and see my little small experiment here, you are welcome for a cup of coffee. Come and have a cup of coffee with me. And I look forward to seeing you, whoever wishes to come. And be courageous in life and stand up for what is right for you. And that's it for the last episode of 2018. Thanks for watching and listening. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it, and it's a really nice late Christmas gift to me. If you want to share your thoughts on any Netflix true stories, make sure to find us on social media. Just search for You Can't Make This Up Netflix. We're the ones with the blue check mark. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thanks for listening. 